When you were growing up, how many people around you had a passion for filmmaking? My dad was definitely a film lover, for sure. His favorite was Fellini. He loved Fellini. Uh, and so he instilled that, that love of Fellini, which then for me branched off into a love of fine arts, of theater, and then, and also film. And my mother also, she loves to watch film, so does my sister. But I think it was definitely my dad's, you know, love of Fellini that kind of started everything else. And you grew up where? I grew up in Portugal, specifically Lisbon. And that's the capital, is that right? Oh, okay. But then you, you went to school. When did you decide you were going to leave Portugal? So I decided I was going to leave when I applied for art school in London. And I went to the Slade School of Fine Art, which is part of University College London. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's when I started my undergraduate degree in, in fine art media, which was basically more kind of video art, performance art, um, sound as well. So it was mainly kind of um, video installations was kind of what I was doing most of all. And when you talk with the other students there, were they also Fellini lovers? Did they remember those films or because they were from all over, they, they chose different directors? I mean, they, they were from all over, but I think that you can say for most video artists, at least the ones that I met, that even if they weren't making commercial film, that they were still very aware of cinema and to a certain extent, like, loved all the aspects of it. And I mean, and there were even some students that did incorporate actual clips from films in their work, but then kind of, you know, remixing them, you know, deconstructing them in kind of more experimental ways. I remember there was like one, one graduate student who he took a clip from Taxi Driver and he, he, he kind of, he extended it out so that there's this, you know, 360 degrees shot that he just, just kept going forever. <laughs> it was, and that was, that was a video installation. Yeah. Interesting. So it was always present. The world of film was always present, even in the experimental world. And when you would watch these Fellini movies with your father, was it almost like film theory or you were just watching it for sheer enjoyment? You weren't analyzing it? Or? I mean, I was definitely watching it for, for the enjoyment, for sure. And especially like uh, Amarcord, I think, it, you know, really kind of strikes a note with that older Mediterranean generation because there's so much crossover with like, you know, Catholicism and the church, but then, you know, burgeoning um, teenage sexuality and then how that plays out. And I think that I only really started to uh, look at Fellini's work theoretically when I was in art school and I had to write a dissertation about um, his work and, ha and then tying that in with um, Jungian archetypes. Oh, wow. Which is kind of, a, a lot of his films kind of lend themselves to those kind of readings because he, he plays so much with the female archetype, with the, um, with the anima. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what, what was the, do you remember the exact title of your, of your dissertation? I think it was like an exploration of feminine archetypes in the film of, in the films of Fellini, I think. Something along those lines. Yeah. And just one, one last question. What, what archetype did he tend to, to go with most or, or was there not one that he went with most? I think that it was, I mean, definitely the, the Madonna you know, the 
that archetype that exists in a lot of, you know, Catholic cultures, Mediterranean cultures, the, the virgin mother, but then kind of juxtaposing that archetype with the more, you know, the, the whore of Babylon, like kind of the two sides of the same coin, but two archetypes that seem to be very present in the male psyche, especially in, in, in the Mediterranean. Sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Have you always been the one who's liked to tell stories around you, especially growing up? I have to say, I think that I was more the one who likes to listen to stories. Um, I think maybe, maybe I think, I think because I started off acting actually, like when I was a teenager. And that was probably for me to kind of get out of my shell a bit more because I was a bit quiet and I was a bit withdrawn. And I think as as an actor, you know, when you're on when you're on stage or when you're in front of a camera, you're the one telling a story, you know, with your body, with your voice. Um, so I kind of I did that for a bit, but then I think I had the desire to tell my stories, but then to collaborate with actors for them to actually embody those those stories but to answer your question i think i i love i loved reading growing up and i loved just just listening to any anecdote any story you know i would always with with my girlfriends or with my friends it was always you know tell me what you did for your weekend i want to know everything like that was i was more the one who absorbed the narratives around me than actually you know talked about what i did for my weekend and how did you know you'd be good with a camera well, I think I only really started working with cameras when I went to art school and I was doing video art. So like I had my own camera and I was making my own little experimental films. So that's that's when I really learned like the ins and outs of um, of a video camera. Um, and then when I left art school, I had a lot of friends who worked in TV and media production and they were the ones who said, you know, why don't you apply for camera assistant jobs? Because, you know, you seem to have a lot of technical, practical knowledge. Uh, and that's that's how that started. And and now I can say I know my way around more more high end cameras than back in the day. Would you say filmmaking has always been easy for you? I think writing comes easier, but then filmmaking because there is also all the pra practical aspects, you know, like funding, getting a crew together, getting a producer. I mean, that's that's always each film presents its own challenges so i don't want to say that oh it's so it's always easy to make a film it's always easy to make a film because it's you have to you know get that boulder up over the hill and each time there's always a lot of effort and it's a team effort but i think just um coming up with an idea for a film i that i find relatively easy yeah in that sense you think that goes back to, like you were saying earlier, you love to be sort of the receiver of the story and, and not the one pushing the story out. And, and maybe you just got so good at, I don't know, just absorbing stories. Yeah, maybe. So now I, I absorbed all those stories and now I can kind of put them out. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. maybe. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that too, because it is nice to just hear somebody tell you about their day. And believe me, there's a number of people that that's all they want to do. And sometimes it's nice to just have that around. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering if if then it became just so instinctual for you to, to push out um, your own stories just because you consume so many. 
and also you know capturing you know the nuances of you know language that kind of stuff really fascinates me and i think you can only really do that if you listen very intently and growing up in portugal is going to the cinemaplex part of just the normal teenage lifestyle for sure and also we don't in portugal we don't really dub films animation usually you know is is dubbed because especially you know for for young kids um they obviously have to have to hear it in portuguese but you you always have the option for any animated film to see it in the original version in portugal so we don't we don't have the kind of the dubbing practices that for example exist in France or in Spain where it's you know you're a bit more hard pressed to find the film in its original version with English, with um Portuguese subtitles yeah do you remember the first film or one of the first films you saw as a teenager with friends maybe at the cinemaplex that was a, an american film and how that affected you i think i think i saw kids and kids definitely is such an such an amazing film and it's and it's a film that i think i mean it was it's like lightning in a bottle and i think you can only appreciate how much it it really was lightning in a bottle now when you look at like you know the first time you know Rosario Dawson was on camera um the first time the Chloe Chloe Sevigny was was on camera and then just the amazing turns from the non actors i think it was the first time that that you know the kid who pay, played Telly had acted before and just watching that film and seeing you know what could be done if you really embraced that that indie spirit you don't need a lot of money to make a good film you really don't you just have to be very very smart and very receptive to what you know the people that you want to work with can give you and when you were watching those movies was that ins- what inspired you to want to go to school in london and then ucla or what was that well i mean i i for a long time i thought i was i would be a video artist so i was kind of looking more like you know pipolotti rust um who's you know very very famous um swiss video artist um looking at other female video more like experimental filmmakers that was kind of the path that I thought I was going to to take but then once I left art school and I started working as a camera assistant I think that's when I was really I really was intrigued about maybe one day directing something that was more narrative uh perhaps you know more more commercial but still indie because I saw that it was very rare to work with you know a female director or a female DP or a female screenwriter and I I wanted to be part of the change that I wanted to see like sort of like Cindy Sherman Cindy she, Sherman mm-hmm. as well of course big reference Right and how it she was most often right the focus of what she did so she didn't even need a crew but yeah and just that interesting sort of the selfies before selfie culture exactly and kind of deconstructing you know what it is to be a woman because i mean only only a woman can answer that question <laughs> but it it was but how many times have women been muses right where the thing that is is looked at and we don't really maybe get the opportunity to look at ourselves especially in like uh in a creative artistic way and so it's it was absolutely very important like Cindy Sherman the Gorilla Girls as well what they did was i mean it's revolutionary it's inspiring it makes you think you know i want to be like that when i grow up <laughs> yeah 
And so how did you do it? Did you apply for just the one school in London or did you apply to others? And what was the process? I applied I applied for a few. I, I applied to the rival. Well, back then it was the rival. I don't know if it still is, which was Goldsmiths. So oh, that was like all the way on the other side of, of London. But in the end, um, I, I didn't get into Goldsmiths, but I got into the Slade and I also got into like Central St. Martins and, um, and uh, Wimbledon as well and London College of Communication. But in the end, I thought the Slade was, was the best fit for me. And so you got your bachelor's and then decided you would go to UCLA after that? Or how did that so, I mean, I'm quite long in the tooth. So I did my undergraduate degree, worked as a camera assistant, got some funding in Portugal, made my first short film there, and I filmed that in 2012. Um, and then I did a few more short films in Portugal. I was there for a while. I realized that if I really wanted to have a career as an indie filmmaker, that I was you know, better off leaving because Portugal still has like a very small film industry. Uh, and then that's when I applied for UCLA. And then I started the master's there in 2015. Yeah. What was your first assignment uh, for this UCLA screenwriting program? Um, so I was in the, the name of the program is production slash directing MFA. And they, I mean, they encourage their, well, really, they, they want their directors to write, even though there is then a screenwriting department, which is, you know, very prestigious at UCLA. But we as directors, we, we had to write, and I think it must have been one of the first assignments that we had. We had to write um, a script for just a two-minute film, just like a little tiny. It's a, it's a bit of a glorified film exercise, but that was maybe one of the first things we had to do, like, year one. Oh, wow. A two-minute mm -hmm. film. Just a two-minute, yeah. So, and it has a three-act structure, a two-minute film? <laughs> Not really. But what I think they try and teach you is that I think you only have four hours to shoot it, and they only give you one card. So I think that the, the purpose of the exercise is to, is to teach you economy, okay. which, I mean, is absolutely very important on a film set as a director being able to make, you know, fast decisions. And so what was your two minute um, project about? So that, I mean, that is on my website for free. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so it's there. Um, What's the domain? Oh, sorry. What's the domain? It's called 88. And at that point, I had already been in contact with Juan Reynoso, who, who's one of my friends, and he's a teacher at Compton High School. Um, and he's also a professional actor. And um, I had asked him, you know, how, are any of your kids like interested in acting? And he said yes. And so he introduced me to Dijon Weathington, who was one of his students at the time. Uh, and he is the star of 88. And he basically, he goes in for a casting audition and is kind of like dismissed by the casting directors, but then kind of like, you know, proves his worth to them in the space of like two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you, you know, maybe this is jumping ahead, but um, I found it interesting that you said that a lot of the people that, a lot of the students that grow up in Compton, that they don't say that they're from Compton when they go to job interviews. They say South Central. Very interesting, because they feel that it's a bias against them. And also, I mean, and that's something that, for example, in, in Lisbon exists as well, the kind of, you know, in neighborhoods that have a bit of a stigma. Yes. I know about that. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. People associate that particular 
suburb in Lisbon with, you know, crime and poverty and all these like very negative things. And so those those kids also when they go into job interviews, they don't they don't say they're from Buraque. They they say they're from Amadora, which is kind of like the equivalent of not saying you're from Compton, saying you're you're from South Central. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. even here in LA, I, I know applying for a job years ago and they said to me, why do you live there? And I was so shocked, you know, and I've had other people do it. It's an interesting thing and I, I just swore that I was not going to, to cave into that, but I almost wonder if it would have been easier. So that's very fascinating. Mm-hmm. When, when I read that, it really like triggered a lot in me that, you know, you had said that because where, where I was referring to was not considered, it was not as stigmatized mm-hmm. as the other areas. but. Um, and did you focus on that in the film? Did did you talk about that when you finally did your feature? Did you explore this? So the feature kind of talks a bit more about um, the 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 stigma of having of you know being DACA eligible or TPS eligible and having that status potentially revoked and then becoming undocumented, which you know is is a a status in and of itself. So it kind of talks more about that than about, you know, just generally Compton per se. Right, okay. And when were you planning, when had you already started writing this film? Was this before 2016 or? No, I started writing the script for La Leyenda Negra, I think at the end of 2017. Uh, okay. So like maybe October, November, I think I had like the first act. Yeah. Right. I know I'm jumping ahead here. Sorry, but I was just I was just curious about the timing. So that was how you sort of got your foot in the door with Compton High School was in doing the two minute mm-hmm. to, to go back to that. And I'm sorry, I'm I'm jumping around. But yeah. OK, so interesting. So you kind of already f- knew the world a little bit. Maybe they trusted you and, mm-hmm. and you were able to go in and, and meet some of the students. Yeah. So that's kind of where it started, but then I did another short film, again, in Compton with Mr. Reynoso, where he played a cop. Uh, and, and so I'd done a few films um, with Compton, non-actors, and then that eventually led to the feature. What advice would you give to other artists coming from other countries who want to come to Los Angeles to attend college, make movies here? I would say that probably the thing that enabled me to come to LA was the fact that I had a very generous scholarship from the Calouste Gulbenkian Foundation, which is a Portuguese institution that is very committed to helping young artists um, to do, to basically for for master programs, um, also for any kind of like workshops or like training initiatives, like they're really good at, at helping they're young artists. And I think especially for international students coming to LA, I mean, if you can get any kind of help, that's really instrumental because obviously I'm sure you can imagine that the fees for an international student are eye-watering to say the least. (laughs) Right, right. And then once a student from another country comes here, any advice on what they can do um, how they can acclimate better to the LA. I know it's it's culture shock for everybody, mm-hmm. even coming from Northern California. It sure. was. Uh, I mean, I think that you know the the UCLA network. I mean, that's the one that I know the most intimately. It's it's huge and it's very welcoming, and you know that's that's something that is encouraged at at the UCLA Film School. Like we all crew on each other's films 
all of us, you know, because I, I camera assisted, so I AC'd on like a bunch of shorts and features when I was at UCLA. And then people, you know, returned the favor. And I, I'd like to say that it's the same at USC and AFI, but I'm not entirely sure. But I think that once you get, once you tap into one of those networks, like things take care of themselves because people want to help each other to, to make films together. You know, we had a video that we posted where someone just talked about short films and in the beginning they had people work on them for free and, and vice versa and there was sort of, you know, it's an understanding in the indie film community and especially in the beginning of someone's career that you're going to help out and I know some people had some backlash to that because they said, well, you're encouraging artists to work for free and not be paid. I understand that that is a problem but especially when you're coming up, quote unquote, mm -hmm. it seems like that's part of paying your dues in a way. And the thing I, I mean, because IAC'd for free after having worked as a professional on so many films, I feel that it's like, I think you can only ask for a favor if you've done a favor for that person or you're going to do a favor. So I always make a point of like, you know, if someone crewed for me, I would absolutely 100% crew for them like you don't even have to ask me you know just tell me what time to be there and I will be there with all my kit and I won't charge you a cent because I, you were there for me when I needed help so I'm going to be there for you and I think you know your word is your bond I think it's all that you have in this industry so I, I'm very um, conscientious of of doing that always what would you say is your filmmaking style I think the kind of films that I love to watch and therefore are the films that kind of I seek to make are kind of, you know, very, very indie, very raw, very rugged, kind of, you know, rough around the edges, but films that have their heart in the right place. I think definitely that's the kind of filmmaking that I gravitate towards and filmmakers who take risks, like big risks, are the ones that, you know, I, I look up to and want to emulate. So even growing up, you, you weren't maybe drawn as much toward the blockbusters as, as some of these raw... I would do the same thing. I would look for these raw, gritty, like, indie films mm -hmm. that you sometimes even saw the boom mic hanging down. Just because the story, there was something... Because mm -hmm. that's the thing. It's like, I think that the, you know, again, I guess just to go back to kids because I mentioned it before. It's like there are... I distinctly remember, like, a section in kids where it's the two the two male protagonists they're talking on a subway train and one of them like blocks the other and technically speaking that would be wrong like oh no no we nix this camera angle but the camera just like sits there and it waits for him to just lean back and it's things like that that it's it's you feel that it's not really about what's right in a film or what's technically correct, it's about the story. And that's always the thing that is going to make you keep coming back to a film is the story because it's so good, it's so engaging. And I mean, come on, let's face it, I mean, there are quite a few blockbusters that you watch and you think, how on earth did this script get greenlit? <laughs> like, how, how much love went into this script? I'm not, I'm, I'm wondering how much love went into it. Whereas like you watch a film like, like Fish Tank again, because Andre Arnold is one of my, of my absolute favorites or Moonlight. How, how much passion went into that script? You know that it did. It's, you, you can't question it. It's, it's there to, to see, to feel. Um, and, and that's 
sometimes my issue with big blockbuster films is I wonder just how much heart is really in them. And also it feels like with a lot of indie films, the, the writer-directors are okay with having a question at the end where it's not in a, a pretty box. And I think there's something nice about that because that's what life is. I mean, yeah, we don't know. I mean, to say something very dark and very Greek, the only pretty box you can expect at the end of life is a coffin, right? That's Let's true. face it. <laughs> very true, yeah. Right, right. okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think that is the problem that either people have against indie films or, or for them is that the ending isn't mm. always, you know... Um, there's a question at the end, and mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'd rather have a question rather than know exactly. How does instinct factor into filmmaking? I think especially for a director, it's really uh, crucial, really critical, because I think, you know, sometimes on, on set, you have to be able to look at a performance and know, is this, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Because I think, I think, Sometimes you're not really sure if anything's gonna work 100%. So all you've got is your gut. And I think especially, you know, I like when I'm asked, oh, you know, what would you tell like young filmmakers? I always say that you've got to trust your instincts because even if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter. You'll make a better film next time around and you learn so much more from failure than you do from success. So just don't be afraid and don't make any excuses. And did that instinct go into casting for your first feature? For sure, and I think especially, I mean, I, I, I want to say, especially with non-actors, you have to be able to see something in them that maybe they don't necessarily see themselves. Right, and how was that for you to try, not, not maybe convince, but, but uh, encourage in some of these actors that maybe they weren't, I don't know, were they... Did they take dramatic arts or, or you saw something in them and just knew it and, and in showing that in them? I mean, I think that most of them were, were really beginners, first timers. Um, I'm not too sure if they had done any like little sketches in class or anything like that. I can't speak to that, but I, I think that in terms of like being on camera, they didn't really have any experience at all. But you know, I mean, I was reading, I was reading an interview the other day that Sophia Lauren gave, and she was saying that, you know, even in all her years as a professional actress and as a star, it's the thing that she wants most of all from a director is trust. And kind of, you know, I think he, she was saying this about um, Vittorio De Sica, that she, he had more faith in me than I had in myself. And that was so important to me as an actress. So I think mm -hmm. that's what, you know, it, when you make your casting choices, if you really believe in an, in an actor or an actress, that's what you've got to make them feel is that I trust you 100%. I've got you. You can do this. So let's go. <laughs> yeah. Patricia, can you give us a snapshot of what your day is like in terms of even in your free time, if you're putting in work on your filmmaking career or thinking about ideas, what's, what, what's your day like? I've definitely been doing a lot of writing um, and especially kind of working on fiction film treatments. I've been doing a lot of that, also developing a TV pilot um, with one of my producers from La Leyenda Negra, um, with Marcel Perez and using that to, to go into meetings and also to, to apply for like, um, initi like TV initiatives 
for example, um, that are kind of looking for, you know, pilot scripts. So I do, I do a lot of that. I spend a lot of time in front of a computer. <laughs> um, and then, and then for fun, I love, I love to dance. I do a lot of like Latin dances, you know, oh, I like nice. salsa. There's this Brazilian dance called Forro as well, which I enjoy very much. So definitely if I've got some free time, I'm usually trying to get a dance in. Now, is that with, um, at a, at a, a, like a class or with just friends? Um, can be kind of both. Um, every now and then if I have time to like, you know, go and do a class, I'll go and do a class. But then there are also just socials. You know, like one of the um, one of the clubs that's very close to where I live is um, the Warehouse in Marina del Rey, and they have salsa dancing every Friday night. Oh, so that's fun. really fun. And then uh, Forro in LA, they'll organize uh, socials like maybe once a month in an art gallery called uh, Tropico de Nopal, which is in uh, downtown. Uh, and they those parties are great because they'll usually they'll have a live band. So I love dancing. I love music. So anytime I can do that, I'm definitely there. Do you think filmmaking is like dancing in some ways? I know it's been compared to jazz or math or different, you know, there's just like filmmaking is not this or that, but in terms of getting everyone on board and doing the right steps? Absolutely. I do think that there's definitely an element of um, uh, choreography, but I have to quote um, Robert Rodriguez because he had such a good uh, um, analogy for what film filmmaking is. And he said, it's it's cooking basically. That when you write, I think he said, when you write the script, that's that's you making a shopping list, right? You're you're writing down all the things you're gonna need to to cook, and then when you're on set with your actors, that's you actually making the dish, and then when you're in the post production phase, when you're in the edit suite, that's you actually getting to sample what you eat, because that's when it's you can actually really see what you've made is in the in the edit suite. So I thought that was that's actually the best <laughs> metaphor I've heard. That's yeah. great. Yeah, I'm, I did not hear that one before. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's great. I know we we went dark a few minutes ago, and I'm going to go dark with something. If today was your last day as a filmmaker, how would you begin your next day doing something different? What would your life be like? So in the sense, if I like had to do something that wasn't making films right you were forbidden there were there was films. a rule there was a law something happened and they said sorry you can't be a filmmaker anymore um i think i would i i think i would still write because i do enjoy writing even with all its ups and downs and lonely bits because <laughs> i think writing can be quite lonely um i still enjoy it and i enjoy researching a lot so if I was still allowed to do that, I think that's what I would do. So when you say research, do you, do you not view it as, you know, some people say, well, research can become procrastination. Do you view it as a way to get to know your character? Absolutely. And just like, I mean, just yesterday I was working on, on the TV pilot that I'm developing with my producer and it's set in Miami. So, I mean, there probably there is an element of procrastination in it, but like, you know, watching videos where, you know, Miami locals explain the intricacies of Miami slang, that's, that's important. If you want to have some of that, like, authentic Miami flavor in your script, you've got you've to hear what 
well, how, how people talk, you know, the words that they use, what, in what context they use them, you know, what, what do the, what the Cubanos use in Miami? Like that's, that's important to, to hear and understand. Was there a new word that you didn't know was a term for something? Um, there was, um, there was, oh, there was one which was hilarious, which apparently Cuban, uh, someone was saying that, oh, my Cuban grandmother, she used to say this all the time because she didn't approve of my, of my boyfriend, which I think it was, um, ese huevo solo quiere sal. Just that egg only wants salt, which means he only wants one thing. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> I thought, but that's so good. It is. Yeah, Go grandma. Wow, right? okay. <laughs> that's really great. Say it one more time. I, I think it. it was, ese huevo solo quiere sal. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, you could do voiceovers too, by the way. You yeah. Know, it's just a beautiful voice. <laughs> okay, sorry, just a side note. What makes a great story? I think what makes a great story for me is feeling that the writer has put some of themselves in it. And you know, that, that thing can be, it can be love, it can be passion, it can be heart, but definitely I think I, I need to feel like in some way, like even if it's a sci-fi story or you know some some more or fantasy genre, but to feel that they have kind of they've opened the vein to tell you this story. Did you see the last black man in San Francisco? I did. I I mean I don't know why it didn't get more buzz. It should have maybe just it, in the Bay Area it did, but um, I saw it twice in the theater and I really felt that they they I mean it's a personal story to to one of the gentlemen, but they really put. That, that, that's an example of that, sorry. And was, is it Jimmy, do you remember the name? Oh gosh. Is it I, Jimmy Fails? I think that's it, yeah. He so. was the one that, that was the yeah. skateboarder. He was yes. the protagonist, yeah. And he's excellent. He was, yeah, yeah absolutely. He's just such a, such a good actor. Um, and, and also so beautifully shot, the film. And yeah, and I think that he did, he wrote, he wrote that script. I think even maybe possibly collaborated with the director as well. I think so, right? To write it, and it was like sort of loosely based, I think, on his life, and he lived in group homes, I think, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. But and I loved the character, the two the two leads in it, just playing off of each other because one of them had more of like a safer home life. I think Danny Glover mm -hmm. was his, his father or grandfather, and and then just you know being able to stay over there but knowing that this isn't really my home and he would stay there and just seeing how he kind of wanted to be this free bird and and i don't know it was just a beautiful film and i wish it i wish it got more attention mm -hmm. how do you know if an idea is worth developing into a story i have a sounding board who is <laughs> i guess he's kind of my secret weapon but he's he's someone who's you know, he's seen, he's seen all my short films and he's always the first person I go to with, with an idea, like even a treatment uh, stage to be like, is this any good or is this like really terrible? And if it is really terrible, can I salvage it? You know, is there a way to make it better? And it's, um, it's a very good friend called Faisal A. Qureshi and he's, he's a professional screenwriter. And he's based in the UK. He's also directed uh, films. And he, I think it's very important as a writer to be able to show someone that you trust 
something that you're not entirely sure if it's any good or not because he know he knows me well enough now that he knows that he can be really harsh and it's okay because at the end of the day I just want to know if I'm wasting my time or not um and he has been very harsh and I really appreciate it um <laughs> because I have had instances where it's like I've sent him a treatment and he'll tell me what's wrong with it <laughs> like in a very kind of brutal way but then that's good because it helps me figure out how I can make it better and i have actually been able to like make it better and like get onto fellowships with treatments that before he was like mm. <laughs> i don't think so yeah and do you, does he reciprocate in terms of he sends you his scripts he does yeah he has sent me his materials uh, before so definitely i think that that's so important is to have someone because i think definitely i i always feel like in this industry you only really get like one chance to like impress people so you want to send them you want to put your best foot forward and that's why it's important to have someone who whose opinion you trust and whose craft you you really admire and you recognize that they're really talented and they're really intelligent and you can just show them like your worst stuff and they will you know give you suggestions um and will tell you maybe what you could do to make it a little bit better. Does he ever ask you to be more harsh? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> just just tell me the like I don't like did he have to encourage or because I could see you not wanting to hurt someone's feelings Absolutely, <laughs> very much so. And it, and yet he's like, you know, like you're like just be honest, like please <laughs> just like tell me because I do I do always think like oh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that'd be really important to have a a a you know, working relationship or just a friendship with someone where you could give them and you know that mm-hmm. they're not trying to wound you to stop you, but mm-hmm. they're just trying to help make you better. Mm-hmm. I think that's a rare thing to find. Absolutely. So that's why, you know, big shout out to to Faisal. Nice. And I think someone who kind of, you know, because they they've read your previous work and they've seen like your previous films that they kind of they they know what you're trying to do. and and because of that they can tell you i know i think i know what you're trying to do but you're maybe you're not doing it the best way that you could do it so let me just you know ask you some questions and and you know make some suggestions because i think i know where you're trying to get i think that's very important because i mean there are some people who you just don't understand your work and don't understand your films and you know don't want to and they're maybe not the best people to get feedback from How do you know personally when your movie idea isn't working? Not not so much if you've given it to someone as a sounding board, but personally. I think that it's when you you yourself are writing it and you are not excited by what you're writing. I think that I think you know that it's working when you're like, you know, I oh I really want to keep, you know, I want to keep going. I want to know I personally want to know what happens next. but if you're kind of like trudging through it and you're like oh god i have to write another five pages or i have to write you know another another you know five fight pa- like you know five paragraphs of this treatment if you yourself are having that thought trust me whoever is reading it is going to also have the same thought of oh god i have to read another five pages before this is over yeah have you ever abandoned an idea like you've been excited about it for a little while and then realized your heart wasn't in it I think yeah definitely but I think more with like um I mean I have had that with a feature script yeah which I was like I, this is not working as a feature but I managed to kind of recycle it into something else um 
And then also short films, like, you know, if, you, if you've, you know, written a short film script, that was a collaboration with, with a friend, and then you apply to a lot of funding and you just keep getting rejected, and then it's like, okay, well, then let's just not. So the universe was telling you something, or at you least like, you okay. took it that way? And then you just move on to the next project, because that got funding, okay, well, then I'll just do that, yeah. What did your experience going to two colleges one that was an art school, one that taught directing, writing, producing. What process did they teach you for building story, and is that a process that you use now? I think definitely at art school, I mean, I, I was making loosely narrative pieces, so not, not really traditionally uh, narrative films. And I think that definitely in art school, in, in terms of, you know, story, in terms of communication, I think that what they, they teach is to experiment, you know, that if there are any rules, you know, they're there to be broken. And so it gives you kind of a fearlessness and a willingness to, you know, to, to bend rules and to, you know, do what you feel is right. But then on the flip side, it's also good to, to be very aware of what those rules are. And I think that that's what going to UCLA gave me because we did have, you know, screenwriting classes with, you know, a lot of really excellent professors. I had, you know, Richard Walter, I had nice. Linda Voorhees, I had uh, George Gary as well. So I think definitely, yeah, UCLA was very instrumental for, for helping me learn the, the classical rules of screenwriting. So then once you learn the rules, then it's okay to play with them and break them or kind of, you know, turn them around or different things mm -hmm. interesting so that that idea of the the rebel writer that doesn't totally know the rules and wants to break all of them maybe that's more fantasy because if you don't really know the rules and what you're breaking is it good at you know is it going to be something worth broken i don't know <laughs> i guess it depends it depends on what kind of film you want to make because like i mean I, I'm not too sure how the process of that of that script came about, but like if you look at Daughters of the Dust, I mean that's not a traditional film structure, but it's very effective because I don't think that Julie Dash was really trying to make like you know a, like a, a classic you know three act structure film. I mean it, I think if you want to explore like different ways of 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 storytelling, then then maybe yeah you don't really need to study the rules as much if that's your end goal will you ever write a screenplay without outlining first no <laughs> i personally wouldn't because i actually think it's very um helpful because sometimes the 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 outline is kind of the 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 road signs the, the markers you know because i think that once especially if you know if you start writing a screenplay and you're you're in the flow um, sometimes it's good to be like, oh yeah, that's where I am. Okay. And then you know where to go next. I, I personally find it just practically very useful. Everyone talks about writing authentic characters. We all want that and we all want to watch that. But how do you know you're writing an authentic character and how easy is it? I think that especially if, if you are... I mean, if you're writing about anyone who isn't you, I think it's very important to do research. And what I mean by research is kind of like, you know, I mean, I, I kind of employed a neorealist strategy in, in La Leyenda Negra where I, I, I cast um, teenagers from 
the community that I was portraying. And I think that that's what, you know, that's what you need if you want to try and make a character more authentic is you really have to like, you know, sit down and interact and spend time and like listen to to the kids in order to like, you know, capture their their unique voices. When you had done the two minute film, which was your first project at UCLA, did you already have the idea for your feature film? No, not yet. You hadn't, okay. No. So then you went back a second time and you did the short film where mm -hmm. it was, wasn't a spelling bee, but it was an audition. Uh, so that was the, the first, so the first short. Okay, right. Was the audition, um, was 88. And then the, the second short film that I shot in Compton with, and also had Mr. Juan Reynoso in it, um, that was called The Hood and that was shot in 2016. But La Leona was only shot in 2018. Ah, uh, okay. At what point, though, did you say, you know what, I feel I want to tell more stories from this community. How do I, how do I get this feature going and how do I come back and pose this question? You had to use the schools, right, or as well, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we were lucky enough to, to get to shoot at Compton High School, but even that wasn't that easy. That, I mean, my producers can attest to the fact that that was quite uh, a process, <laughs> getting permission to, to shoot there. But I think, you know, I couldn't have done it without the, the help and support of, of Mr. Reynoso. Um, so he was definitely, you know, instrumental that when I communicated to him, like, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed, you know, shooting in Compton so much and, you know, I really, really loved the, the people and the stories and the urban environment. I mean, he was the one who kind of said, yep, sure, anytime you want to you wanna come to class, I'll introduce you to my kids who, who are interested in, in acting and you can just take it from there. So then did you go back and write a script and have certain people that you'd already met in mind? I did already have some, some people already in mind, but I think that when I started the casting process, I think I had a first draft and I started the casting process in January of 2018. And did you ever envision that this film would go to Sundance? Oh, definitely not. No. Not at all. So it wasn't like you said, hey, guys, we're going to shoot this film and our goal is to go there and you and you sort of prep them. <laughs> no. I mean, you can always you can always say like, um, oh, you know, this film is going to go here, here and there. But you don't know. I don't I don't think anybody really knows. Well, wow. unless you're like super mega successful and you already know <laughs> exactly what you what you're doing with your life. But none of us did. Wow. No. How do you write a great scene? I personally think that you you write a first version, which is what you as a writer think, you know, this is what this scene needs to do. This is the function that this scene has in in the film. I mean, just just as a basic scene goal, you know, advancing the plot of the of the of the film or like, you know, establishing an important dynamic or an important connection. And then I personally, what I like to do is then workshop it with the actors and have, you know, give them the opportunity to kind of like, okay, you know, the first time we run it, let's, let's stick to the, to the script. And then the second time we run it, 
feel free to improvise, you know, feel free to, you know, live, live your character and live your character in this specific moment, in this specific space with your, with your scene partner. And then, and then from that, you can get these really, you know, precious moments, these like gems that then what I then do is write them back into the shooting script. How does a screenwriter decide a story ending? Well, I can say that for La Leyenda Negra, I had to campaign for the open ending because I was often told um, that American audiences do not like open endings and can't do that. <laughs> so that's like a European thing. That's not okay. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. But I thought long and hard about why I thought an open ending was right. And I reached the conclusion that the reason that we need, the, the film needs to end that way is because there's so much instability and so much insecurity uh, in these kids' lives because, you know, TPS is not a path to, to citizenship and neither is DACA. So these kids do not know what's gonna happen. No one knows what's gonna happen. And so it, make, it made more sense for me to conclude the film on that note of uh, instability and precariousness and uncertainty as kind of symbolic of the predicament of uh, these TPS eligible kids. And you had done another story, I think it was a short film of three young women that were all from different backgrounds, mm -hmm. one, one more impoverished and I think the one in the middle maybe not so much and then the other one a little more from a privileged, more like, quote, unquote, safer environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that something that you've always been interested in, just sort of environment and how we grow up and how it shapes us? And definitely, like, urban environments. Because, I mean, I'm very much like, you know, I, I, I grew up as a city kid. And I think that that's definitely, especially because you, you mentioned Lisbon. I mean, that's one of the things that I just love about Lisbon is that, I mean, I think any, you know, big cosmopolitan city has this, but, you know, the melting pot of different cultures because you know, in in Lisbon, we've got you know there are there are Brazilians, there are people from Angola, there are people from Mozambique, there are people from Cabo Verde, you know there there are people from Macau in China, there are you know um, uh, people from East Timor as well, and it's it's they're all all like coming together, is it's so it's so unique and it's so special and it's something that you know when I was a teenager it excited me and it still excites me too this day is that cultural melting pot. So when you went to Compton High School for the first time, what did you notice about the students and their reception of a filmmaker coming there to feature them or their stories? I think that the, definitely the kids who were, you know, interested in acting were the ones who were the most excited, especially because, you know, I mean, the, the majority of the, the cast of the film is, is Latino. And at least from what they told me, like it's, you know, if I have a conversation with my parents where I say like, oh, I want to act, they'll be like, oh, that's nice. How are you going to help us pay the bills? So it's for them, it's like this might be their only opportunity to to be in a film ever. And so for them, it's like they they kind of really seize the opportunity and I kind of really, you know, I mean, I needed them. I needed their their creative talents to to make the the film really. And and so I think that they were very very 
open and very excited. And it's, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful and very grateful for all the, the time and the energy and the dedication that they put in. And I feel in a lot of ways that the film is as much theirs as it is mine. Did anybody at first maybe put up walls and say, she doesn't know us? I mean, no offense here, I'm just gonna mm -hmm. play the devil's advocate. She's, she's Hollywood, she doesn't know us. Why is she here? And then they changed? Well, I don't think anybody thinks I'm Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> you know, I think it would be different if I was, but I don't think anybody. Okay. <laughs> I think they also definitely saw that I was like, you know, scruffy, impoverished um, student filmmaker. Um, so I don't think that they, Okay. Uh, I don't <laughs> think so. How much time did you spend writing La Leyenda Negra? So I started writing that I want to say November of 2017 and the shooting script was more or less solidified by June, June 2018. And what was it that made you want to tell the story? I think it was after I met the, the kids at Compton High and a lot of them are were, were Latino and they go through what every other American teenager goes through, but also a lot of them have immigration statuses that are currently being revoked by this administration. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about that and kind of, you know, the, the fear and the insecurity and anxiety that they felt. What made writing this film either easier or more difficult than anything you'd ever done before? I think it was easier in the sense that it was just such a, um, it was such a pleasure to, you know, work with the kids and hang out with the kids and kind of, you know, play and collaborate with them. I mean, that, that was just fun. It was just, I mean, it was work as well, but it was, um, it was wonderful. It was a real pleasure. Um, and I think, I think the hardest thing about, about writing the script or was it more about making the film? Could be both. Okay. Or maybe just that you had to say goodbye to the kids at some point. <laughs> I'm sure that was. I mean, yeah, I mean, that is, it is true that you spend such a long time with a film that, you know, that you're writing it and then you're casting and then you're rehearsing and location scouting and then you're actually shooting it. That I think that when the film ends, you feel almost like you, you know, you're, you're bereft. You know, you feel like you've you've lost a loved a loved thing. You know, if not a loved one, but a loved thing when the film is concluded. And since you didn't expect to go to Sundance, and then how did you announce the news to the these actors from Compton High that the film is going there? Um, I mean, I was very practical about it. I emailed everybody. Oh, okay, <laughs> <Just> nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Saying good news. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then I think, and then of course, then we all met, you know, and then at Sundance and it was, you know, to see their like, you know, big wide eyed, um, joy was very special. How did you pitch the film to investors? Well, I was very lucky to have the support of the Kalu School Banking Foundation. So that helped a lot. That was like, to be honest, the majority of the film's budget. Um, and then, and then I did also have an executive producer, Juliana Politsky who um, she had, she already knew of my work, like she'd seen my short films before and she really liked them. And I think she, like, she really believed in me. 
Um, and so once we had like a first assembly, me and my editor, I sent her a link to, a link to the film and she, and that's when she came on board as an executive producer. So she also helped a lot. And then obviously, you know, UCLA helped as well, you know, in terms of like providing equipment um, and, and that kind of like logistical support. And but then, oh, I wouldn't say that I really, I didn't really pitch to Juliana. I just kind of showed her the film <laughs> as opposed to pitching. Yeah. Oh, so you, did you have like a, a sizzle reel or anything like that when you showed it to her? Um, I showed her like the whole the whole film. I just sent her a link to like a first edit. Oh, so she came on after you had already shot. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I didn't understand that. Oh, okay. Is the film available for people to watch now? Um, it's on the festival circuit now. So, you know, hopefully it'll be coming to a town near you <laughs> in terms of um, uh, festival screenings. But we do have a sales agent and who, who's currently in talks with, you know, potential distributors. Did you receive any pushback being a first time director that possibly you shouldn't direct the film, that you should have someone else that had done multiple feature films? Well, I mean, because I was in the directing program, I mean, in order to graduate, I had to make a thesis film. Um, and I think that definitely there were people who were like, are you sure you want to make a feature? Maybe you could just make like a short, like, you know, kind of like a proof of, of concept. And then, you know, you could use that to then, you know, um, pitch to investors and then you could make your feature further down the line. For me, it was like this might be the only chance I ever get to make a feature in America. I mean, I can make you know, features in Portugal, you know, further down the line or in Europe and I won't have any issues, but this is the only opportunity I've got that I know that, that I can make a feature right here, right now. What was the most emotional day you had on set? I think the most emotional day was when we were shooting a very emotional scene, which is um, Elethea gets, gets the bad news that her scholarship has been revoked and she has kind of, you know, a confrontation with her, with her stepfather. Um, and the actress, like, she did such a good job, like, you know, Monica Betancourt, like, she, she really just brought the house down, and she, and, and, you know, the, the, the take in which she cried, like, I cried as well, and then we both cried together, and <laughs> my first AD had to, like, give us both a moment, and you had people being like, what's the holdup, and it's like, they're crying, <laughs> just give them a second, they're crying together, Aww. yeah. But it was it was good because I knew she'd really she brought it, you know. And if, forgive me if this is this is too personal. We we can turn it off and, and switch topics. But I believe that you both lost your fathers at a fairly young age. Well, she had lost her father very recently. Okay. I think her father had passed away in January of two thousand and eighteen. I think so. So very recently. I mean, I, I lost my father when I was 22 years old. So that was, you know, a bit a bit longer ago. But definitely, I think that she was very much channeling that that loss. And, and in your home, you have sort of a, a shrine or some a memory? Or you... It was it's Monica, actually, oh, like okay. she had and she showed me that they had like a sort of 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 shrine for her father in her in her home in um, in Compton. Wow. With like all these like photographs and then like a little like a little bottle of like favorite tequila as well. Oh. Yeah. So so the two of you had that sort of as a bond mm -hmm. and and you saw her and even though she said she was very seemed very shy, you saw a strength in her. For sure, yeah. And she is. She's very, very strong. Despite her youth, like she's a very strong woman. Mm. 
And in the film, these these high school people are these high school students. Are they a member of some type of a, a political club? Um, in the in the movie itself, I you know created a fictitious uh, underground political organization called the Compton Black Bloc, which kind of has anarchist um, affiliations. Uh, but as far as I know, I don't I, I don't oh, know right. any of the students themselves have. You know. No, no, but in the film, though. In the yeah, film, okay, though, yes. Right, so that's right. fictitious. I mean, I get, I, I get asked about that a lot. Like, oh, is that really a thing? And it's like, no, I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> oh other people are yeah. curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you notice that that this generation is, is much more um, politically active than than maybe millennials or, or just Gen Z in general, just mm -hmm. because they're presented with many more things that, I mean, myself as a Gen Xer wasn't presented with? Do you see that at all? Or? Um, I mean, I think, at least from what I've seen, that it seems to be like two ends of, of the spectrum. Either they're like, you know, pretty apathetic and don't really, you know, they're not very interested in politics or they have very, very strong. So what I see is that um, polarization between those two uh, views. Interesting. What do you think makes one more so than the other just because one's been affected? Um, and I think if you're if you're directly affected by you know the policy, policy some of the policies of the of the administration, I think you're you know you're probably much more likely to have some <laughs> some response to that. Whereas if it doesn't affect you or anyone that that you know, it's a bit like mm, meh. Is, is is at least what I have seen. For your next film, uh, you said you want to do a narrative, or I know you're working on TV projects as well. But would it be in a similar vein, just about people and home and what they consider home and losing certain things? I mean, definitely, you know, the YA stories interest me very much. You know, the coming of age stories, uh, the Latino space interests me a lot as well. Um, and also like women, you know, female driven narratives. I think like those are kind of like in my previous work. That's that's what I've always gravitated towards. So I would yeah very much like to continue you know exploring that that space. When you submitted the film to Sundance, did you submit a rough cut? No, we had we had picture locked, and I think we had like a, a temp mix. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And did you? Ex I mean, expect. To, to, did you do it thinking that you really had a good chance or you thought, you know what, let me just try this? It was, it was more the latter. Oh, really? Okay. It was more like, no, wow. let's, let's just try. Because I think that's all you can do, you know. I think that I, we, you know, we have a, a, a saying in Portugal, which is the no is guaranteed. So why not try for the yes? How do you say it? I'd love to hear it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, o não é garantido. Okay. I mean, at least that's, you know, how I've heard Beautiful. it. So it's like, you know, why not try? Why not, you know, give it a whirl? What were some of the best things that happened to you at Sundance? Uh, I think it was definitely for me the, the audience response. I think that was definitely what, you know, what it was the, that kind of, um, you know, validation really of like, you know, having someone, I remember a lady who came up at uh, the end of the premiere at the Egyptian theater. And she said, you know, I didn't even know what your film was about. I didn't even read the synopsis. I just knew I had like a couple of free hours this afternoon. So I just came here and I watched your film and I loved it. I mean, I was, I, I didn't know 
that this was happening to these young kids and my heart really broke for them. And I would love to know what I can do as an American to, to help these, you know, TPS eligible kids, uh, you know, like, because the film really like it, you know, it, it woke me up. And for me, it's like, well, that's, ex that's exactly why I made the film. For me, that was definitely like the best thing. Did you have a Q&A? Afterwards? Always. After every oh. single screening, there was always a Q&A, yes. What's the most common question they ask? Um, the, oh, the significance of the title or, you know, what motivated you to shoot in black and white. Those tend to be pretty, pretty commonly asked. And can you tell me more about the title and what comes into play with that? So, um, La Leyenda Negra, it, it essentially refers to a historical bias. Um, and it's uh, the term that protest settlers used to, to refer to the Spanish conquistadores. Um, and basically, you know, the character of Eletea, she challenges all bias in her fight for truth. Um, and this is uh, reflected in the scene that she kind of stands up for herself in history class, but also it's reflected in her involvement in the underground political organization, the Compton Black Bloc. Um, and because the film kind of considers, you know, cycles of history and imperialism, both old and new, La Leyenda Negra refers to um, the, that historical bias, but it's also a nod to Elethea's involvement in anarchist circles, because if you translate La Leyenda Negra, it means the black legend. And what is the scene in the history class? Just briefly, what is that? So that's um, where the the teacher has just shown this this uh, Carlos Fuentes documentary, uh, where he kind of talks about you know the conquistadores and like you know the like you know Cortez's uh, uh, arrival in in Mexico. Uh, and the teacher kind of makes some, some affirmations that then Elithea challenges in front of the entire class. Ah, okay. It, was that a breaking moment where she kind of came out of her shell? Or? Exactly, oh, interesting. yes. Interesting. Did you get a phone call from Sundance? Yes. Oh, okay. What did they say? Like, ring, ring, hey, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it, was one of the, it was one of the programmers. Oh, nice. Um, but to be honest, when... Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't really, I mean, I thought it was a prank when I first got it. I was like, this isn't, this isn't, this is someone making a very mean joke at my expense. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. Um, and then it was like, hmm, maybe I didn't like, you know, I was worried that I might have hallucinated the phone call. But then when I started to get emails from artist relations, I was like, oh no, this might actually <laughs> have happened. Yeah. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. when you got the phone call, you just thought it was someone like, uh, were you playing along with it? And you're like, okay, at some moment, you're going to figure out who it is. Uh, well, yes, yeah, so I was just kind of like listening. Yeah, I was just like listening, listening. And, but then I was like, oh, wow. No, I actually think that I am really talking to a programmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a telemarketer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not selling you uh, solar panels. Okay. What do you think the secret is to having your film accepted at Sundance? You know, because they say, oh, you have to know somebody, mm. these different things. What do you think the secret is? I think, I mean, because I did meet the, the programmer at Sundance who said to me, like, you know, I, when I saw your film, I was the one who kind of, you know, flagged it to all my colleagues and was like, this film has, you know, has got to be programmed. 
Um, and he said, you, you know, I mean, I just, you know, I, I was moved by your film. So I think that at least what he told me was that the film touched him. So I don't know. I, is, I don't know if that means that that's, that's the secret. Or going back to what we talked to in previous questions, just that authentic voice and, and putting part of yourself. Did, mm -hmm. did you feel a part of yourself in the story? Definitely, definitely in the, like, you know, the, the I've, I think I've been, you know, the character of Elethea and Rosarito and even the character of Monica at like different points in my life. So definitely there was, you know, versions of me in, in them, yeah. Right. So did you did you think back to growing up in Portugal or is this more when you've gone to college, you've sort of been out of your quote unquote home country? Sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the immigrant experience and then just, you know, growing up, I think, as a, as a young girl into a young woman. In the film, were the parents also undocumented or... Because did they have the were was part of the story that they had the child here in the states and they and they themselves were undocumented? No, um, Aletea, the character of Aletea, was born in El Salvador and then um, came with her mother ah. um, as as a, as an infant to America. But in the story, um, Aletea's mother has already passed away, and Aletea lives with her stepfather. Oh. So there's no, you know, the, um, there's no really any blood relation between Aletea and the character of Juan in the film. So she's really sort of without a family in some sense, except for maybe her classmates. And her stepdad, yeah. Okay, interesting. How do you feel about what you've accomplished so far? And what do you want to accomplish next? Well, I feel very, very lucky, very grateful. Um, and definitely, I would like to continue making features. That's definitely kind of the, the end goal, is to keep, keep writing, keep pitching, keep developing, and have you know, more features uh, down the pipeline. Do you remember something that was said to you in one of these UCLA writing classes that you never forgot? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Richard Walter um, <laughs> said, you know, nobody, wants to see, you know, the film of the village of the nice happy people. <laughs> I always remember <laughs> that one because it's, it's so true. Yeah. And also he said something which is in, in Hollywood, all you do is graduate to the next level of disappointment. You know, like, I think he That's used really the, the example that you write the script, but it doesn't sell. You know, it's, it's uh, shot, but it's not distributed. It's distributed, but not for, not in great venues. So you're, you basically just <laughs> graduate to the next level, which is very grounding. You know, it's very grounding advice that, you know, it's, you're, you're always going to be walking the tightrope in this industry, you know, no matter how well you think you're doing, you're always walking the tightrope. Very interesting. So also coming with more of, you know, we're saying like the European mindset of just try it and see what happens, which I like that. I like that mindset. Do, do you think that coupled with that piece of advice has helped you to be like, you know what, I'm going to try it. And yeah, why not? I'll submit to Sundance. Some people, their first film, I mean, that what a, a major accomplishment. 
but to always like you know keep your your feet on the ground you know because because I mean that's something that he he would say to us you know as as a screenwriter like the the secret to success is self-motivated you know speculative writing you know if you just like sit around and you wait for people to come to you that's not going to happen you just need to have your own engine and you have to keep moving forward regardless and is that what then sort of at what point when you heard that did you then go and approach Mr. Reynoso was it at Compton High and and ask him to to then work with you with your feature did did you hear that before or or oh before definitely oh you did okay yeah, yeah. you're very interesting i think that um, richard walter's class was one of the first ones that i took at ucla for screenwriting great do you think that that other people not just that statement in general but would react to something like that you know we maybe i'm more of this old mindset where people kind of expected to be picked for things and i don't think that's the case anymore or maybe it's less so do you think do you think there was a reaction to people thinking that i have to be the one to like drum up excitement or or not i mean some people want to be picked and there's also a, a a feeling of i've arrived if i'm picked if i have mm -hmm. to push this out then it must not you know you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. but i think that's an old mindset do you think that the newer generations are, are of the the mindset of i need to keep working at this and i'm the one that makes this happen yeah i mean i think definitely like what i hear every every young creative in la say all the time is that the hustle is real <laughs> Okay, there you go. Okay, right. Okay. You can never get comfortable, you know. Just because, you know, things are good now doesn't mean that it's that they're going to stay that way. So you've really got to just keep keep working, um, keep collaborating, keep making um and just, you know, stay stay focused. Because you know, I've had, you know, very successful filmmakers say to me that, you know, the reason that I'm still making films and the colleagues that i you know worked with or grew up with are no longer making films is not because i'm more talented than them it's just i kept going when they gave up that's the difference it's just persistence and and focus and drive and determination like that's that's what is going to keep you moving forward what film do you watch where you say i wish i could have made that i think fish tank yeah because it's a film that you know you watch and you know the cinematography is brilliant the performances are brilliant the story is engaging the dialogue is is just right like it's really it's a flawless film from start to finish where were you the first time you saw it i think in london i think i might have been studying in london when that film came out uh and definitely it's it's a film that that makes that made me want to make films sorry there's a Porsche repair <laughs> shop very <right> noisy <laughs> <laughs> i think they they test them what is the hardest part of writing for you i think at least at least for me um you need to have a lot of discipline to write and i i remember cuz i visited um his house in key west that like 
Ernest Hemingway, like he would have uh, a practice of like, no matter what, he would always like, you know, block out like four or five hours in the morning to write, no matter what, he would do that every single day. You know, some days he would write a lot, some days he would just write like two words, but he would always block out those hours to write. And so I think that that's maybe the hardest thing is, you know, really maintaining that discipline and that self-motivation because writing can be kind of lonely. How many hours a day do you write? Do you do the same thing? I have to say that I'm not as disciplined as Ernest Hemingway <laughs> was um, because I need, what I really need to do is I need to like turn off my phone because I get very easily distracted. Like if I get a message or if I get a phone call and what I need to do is I need to be completely focused and then I can just kind of plow through pages that way. Do you set goals for yourself? Definitely. I'll be like, okay, to, you know, I know I, I need to get like 30 pages by the end of this week. So, you know, I work out, okay, so I'll do, do five this day, six this day, maybe this day I'll do four. So then the next day I can do seven. So I, I definitely try and like uh, figure out what my, my daily goals are to work to the big goal. When you write your first draft of something, what's your next step? Do you put it away? Do you send it to somebody that you know will give you honest maybe brutal feedback, what, what is your plan with that? I think, so if I finished writing the first draft, I like to put it away for a little bit and try and create a space where I have like a little bit more objectivity and then I read it, see if there's anything that I wanna change. And if I'm like, no, I think I wanna show this now, then I'll send it to someone whose opinion I really value. And have you ever, been critical of something you've written and then you've given it space and then you go, you know what, wow, this is actually great. I was too hard on myself or, or maybe vice versa. I don't know. I mean, I never, I, I mean, all I can really gauge is how much I enjoyed writing it. And I, I tend to find that the things that I enjoyed writing more are the ones that I get better feedback um, about. But I think that um, definitely I've, I've had treatments that I've asked notes for and gotten very like critical notes, like pretty brutal feedback. And I've worried that like, oh, maybe this is just really bad and I should scrap it. But then I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm gonna try again. And then I've applied with that same treatment for fellowships and like gotten in to those. So it just goes to show that even if maybe it starts badly, that doesn't mean that it can't, you know, end a bit better. <laughs> You've directed many short films, but this was your first feature. Were there like one or two things that you were totally surprised at as a, a first time feature film director that you thought wouldn't happen or it was just new to you because you're doing a longer format? Mm -hmm. I think that you know, we definitely had some, some things come up that couldn't have been predicted. There were like, there was a weekend that we had to postpone shooting because there was the, a heat wave, like a really kind of, you know, terrible heat wave in LA at the time. And that's something that it's like, usually, usually with a short film, like, you know, if you shoot for like five days, you're usually, you're able to do those, those five days in a row. And if you have to postpone, it's maybe not that big a deal. 
but we were lucky that on the feature that happened more towards the end of the shoot, because I think if it had happened like in the beginning or in the middle, I think it would have been really catastrophic to like um, recover a rhythm. And I think that's the most important thing. I think I found that more on the feature than I did on the short was the how important for there to be like a rhythm that's been established and how, you know, how you do eventually become a very well-oiled machine after like, you know, two weeks of working together. So that even when things don't go according to plan and you do have to postpone, it's it's okay because when you when you do come back together, it's you're already so used to working with each other that you can just pick up where you left off. Oh wow, I hadn't thought of that. That's really interesting. So it takes it takes a few weeks to kind of get to know people's styles, not just their personality, but their like working styles. And really like gel wow. together, yeah. So then when this heat wave occurred, um, how many days did that take out of the production? We still had um, two more full days. Um, and I think a half day that we needed to do. So even though it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't great that we had to, to push back and we ended up losing our DP because he had already booked another shoot. Um, it, it could have been worse, <laughs> yeah. Did your dad happen to see any of your films? You know, I don't think he did see any of them, but he did, because I actually started painting when I was like 16, 17, 18. And I know he really, he liked my paintings, <laughs> but he never, I don't think he ever saw any of my films. What were you painting? I was painting a lot of female subjects, a lot of like female form, um, but I can't, I personally did not enjoy painting. And I think it was, you know, uh, talking to to an art teacher about like what I mean do you do you even enjoy the process of painting or is painting kind of more like an obstacle for you that you have to overcome in order to you know produce this final image that you have in your mind and I was like yeah it's 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 more the latter it's more that and he was like well you might want to consider you know photography or or film or video because if you're not really interested in in painting as a process if it's more about the image, then this might not be the right medium for you. Were you using uh, watercolors or acrylics or? Oil. Oil, okay, wow. Oil, yeah. Wow. But I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure, I mean, most people usually start with like acrylics and watercolor and then they'll like work their way up to, to oil. Just because it requires, I mean, more money because <laughs> oil paints are not cheap. Um, and a lot of technique as well. What do you think he would have thought of your feature film? I hope that he would like it. I hope he would laugh, because he liked to laugh. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that he would, at the very least, find it entertaining. Yeah. When your art teacher said that to you, was, I'm assuming you approached them and said that the process was super hard and, and confided in them. How did you take that news? Was that an insult or was it in like sort of liberating because then you realized maybe this isn't the medium for you? I think it was, I think it was liberating because it got me excited about something new. You know, like the first time you, you know, you pick up uh, like an, an SLR 
you know, and you load the film and then you're experimenting with the settings, with like the shutter speed and the aperture and all of that. And it's, and I mean, you know, developing your first role of black and white film is amazing. It feels like a discovery. Obviously it's not because people have been developing black and white film for, you know, a very long time now. But when you're a teenager and it's your first time in a dark room, it's magical. Like, you know, you're never gonna get that, that kind of moment again. So it was definitely very, it was very special. Once your art teacher said that, then you picked up the camera and do you remember what you started shooting? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember because I was I was still in in Lisbon at the time. And I was also I like I spent the summer in London. And because I was such a big fan of Cindy Sherman, like I did a bit of that. Kind oh, nice. of like the you know, you know, femininity is a masquerade and kind of experimenting with like different looks and what does it mean to be using your own, appropriating your own form as a woman making art. So that was definitely a big, uh, a big influence. And then also, you know, um, taking pictures in, in Lisbon, which is such a beautiful city and kind of like finding like, you know, different perspectives on a place that to me was so familiar. Do you ever look back at those photos now? I do. I do. I mean, and especially for the for the Cindy Sherman ones, I, I made like great big posters of those. Yeah. Yeah, I know Cindy Sherman, there was a documentary, I think it was done in the 90s, and it showed her and she wanted to talk about her perspective of being a woman walking down the street in New York City, these different things. And um, did you do anything of that sort of the the react the being out in public and maybe expectation or? Um, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I didn't do anything along those lines. And I, but I did like, there were a couple of performance pieces that I did devise and I thought about doing, but they were more about like, you know, manipulating your own form and kind of controlling the way that you are seen by the viewer. So it was less kind of like that direct interaction. And I mean, like, you know, there's so many, you know, a female artists have, have done such, you know, amazing work that they've like directly interacted with, with audience members, you know, like um, Valerie Export, yeah. And also Yoko Ono. I mean, she was a pioneer in that way before Marina Abramovich, when, you know, no shade, <laughs> but she was, you know, before. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't quite do anything like, like that, but I was aware that the female artists were doing it. Yeah. And you said your, your mother was also an artist too? No, my mother was a French teacher. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I guess cause you said she enjoyed watching the films. Oh, okay. So, so then how many languages did you speak growing up? Um, so Portuguese, English, Spanish. Um, because, you know, Portuguese and Spanish are very similar, so it's pretty easy to learn one if you know the other. Uh, and also Hebrew. Oh, okay, wow. Because, um, because we, are, we are of Jewish descent, German-Jewish descent, uh, and also French. We didn't really have a choice. We had to speak French because my mother, <laughs> mother was like, you're going to have to learn French. Wow. Yeah. So all those different languages and... Did you also explore films from all those different areas? 
for sure. So Godard and, yeah. and different people. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of French French cinema for, for sure. Absolutely. And Spanish cinema too as well. Yeah. And so at what point did you even explore American cinema? It sounds like you had so many great influences. Would you even would you even delve into that? Or maybe you did. I mean, I did, I did do a couple like film workshops in, in Lisbon when I was in high school. And obviously like one of the first films that they're going to show you is Citizen Kane. Like that's sure that's true. A staple, right? You're not <laughs> yeah. you're not going to do mm-hmm. any course in like you know film history or film theory and not watch Citizen Kane. Um, so that was probably one of the first like kind of like classic um, references of American cinema that I was exposed to. Wow. I'm always envious of people that grow up in Europe or, or different, you know, abroad because it seems like they get such. Um, they they are exposed to many more worlds. It seems mm-hmm. like. Maybe it's just been a few years since I've been in school. So it seems like here in the U.S. we're not as exposed to, to some of that. Maybe more so now. But I think you just get so many more mm-hmm. flavors of and different slices of life. Um, I think that probably really shapes people's mm-hmm. art and their, and their outlook. And, and that's really cool. Wow, it sounds like you had some really just interesting... You want to talk about... A, 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 we were talking earlier about Robert Rodriguez and saying mm-hmm. that it's like making a stew or, you know, yeah. making some kind of food. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you just had all these different things that you could add yeah. to your palette of, mm-hmm. of ideas. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Was there an actress similar to like Marilyn Monroe back in the day in, in Portugal? Someone that had this like awe and mystery around them. You know, you talked about you you were interested in the idea of femininity and sort of the, the perceptions of what women had to be. Were there any icons? I know you talked about Sofia Loren, and mm-hmm. she was very international, but in, in Portugal? I mean, well, she's obviously not of the same decade as Marilyn Monroe, but um, Maria de Medeiros is very interesting, and she was in Pulp Fiction. Right, okay. So the, the I can't quite remember the name of her character, but she played Bruce Willis's girlfriend, Right, okay. That's Maria de Medeiros, who is, who is Portuguese um, and is an excellent actress and was just, you know, amazing in that film. And her chemistry with Bruce Willis is, you know, impeccable. Um, and she's someone who also is not just an actress, she also directs. Ah, okay. So that's very inspiring to be like, you know, a Portuguese a woman who has, you know, who's, you know, started off acting, but now has progressed into being a filmmaker in her own right. When you were applying for college, going to London, where did you envision you would be a decade out? Did you have an idea of what you wanted for yourself? I mean, when I applied to art school, I think definitely the end goal was to become, you know, a professional artist. So that's, you know, at least back then, that's that was a different path. Like you would maybe be, you know, signed to a gallery, and then you would, you know, apply for residencies. You would apply for funding. You would get, um, and then you would be able to kind of make your own work, and then that work would be shown in galleries, and then it would go to museums. It would, you know, it's that's kind of the traje- trajectory that I thought I was going to have back then. So more as a visual artist in in terms of, Mm -hmm. I know you said with the painting, that was something that you sort of abandoned, but you had other, you said just more like video, like Mm -hmm. sort of exhibitions and things like that. So that's kind of where I thought I was, Mm -hmm. I was heading. Wow. Interesting. And then somehow just the filmmaking bug 
it bit you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it took you to LA, to UCLA. It's one of the best screenwriting programs. And, and, and just the energy behind it, you think, just kind of your need to tell stories? Yes. And to also have, um, to try and have a sustainable career. Because I think, you know, definitely it was something that they said to us after we graduated from, from university where I was doing my, my undergraduate degree. It was like, oh, if you want to, if you want to be taken seriously as an artist, if you really want to consider this as a, as a career, you have to do a master's. Like you have to, you must. And, and to be honest, like my, my peers who have done well, they did all do a master's degree. So it's, it was true. And for me, like, because I had also done a foundation degree before doing the four years at the Slate, I'd already been like, you know, five years in like academic institutions. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not ready to do a master's right now. So it was like, OK, well, then what else can I do? So then you decided to move and you added you moved to L.A. and you added it. So it was a two year program. At UCLA? It was. I mean, in my degree, usually people take on average four years to, to complete the MFA in production slash directing. And, and you already completed it and it was how long? I took three years and a quarter. Oh, okay. Would you advise that other either writers, artists, um, filmmakers, any, any type of creative pursuit always go for a master's degree? I mean, it depends. I mean, there are some very successful filmmakers who did not go to film school. And that's that's a fact. I don't know if that's if it's like 50 50, you know, half of the successful filmmakers in, in Hollywood didn't go to film school and the other half did. I don't I don't know what the percentages are, but I mean, I can say that one of the big advantages of going to film school is, is the is the community is the network of like-minded collaborators that you will meet. But if you have access to that without having to go to film school, then maybe that's, that's all you need, maybe. Hmm. Okay. And have you ever seen someone use that and over-rely on that and not maybe do the work it takes, you know? Because it, it sounds like you need, you need a, a combination of both. The, the degree, the knowing what the rules are so you can break them, and then just like you said, the hustle never stops or whatever. <laughs> Which, that, I mean, I know I've heard that, but I guess it just sort of solidified for me today. But do you see people sometimes maybe relying too much on the fact that they had the degree and not actually going out there like you did mm -hmm. and knowing, okay, I have this opportunity at this high school. I know a teacher especially who, or I'm, I'm sorry, I don't even know if he was a teacher. I just assumed. He was, he was. Oh, he was, okay. Mm -hmm. That 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 is is simpatico with me and we're, we're, we're doing this. Um, and, and But they just, they want to be picked? And you knew that you had to... I mean, what, what I have seen is like, you know, um, young filmmakers who have gone through film schools and they have, you know, one short film that does well, that maybe goes to, you know, the Cine Fondation, which is, which is at Cannes or Berlin. And they think, okay, now people are going to come to me. I've done enough. Like, I don't need to keep, you know, hustling. I don't need to keep, you know, making my own connections, making my own contacts, working on my own material, like really keeping the engine going. And the truth is, is that in, in this day and age, there's so much competition that I think that if you don't keep striving, that you will fall behind. 
and I have seen that happen to some. Some filmmakers think that, you know, now that I've had a little bit of success, I can just, you know, you know, cross my arms and like sit back because it's all gonna come to me. And I just, it doesn't really tend to happen that way. So you won't rest on your Sundance success? I can't, I have to, what I have to do now is, um, you know, what, what any good manager will tell you is like, you have to capitalize on the buzz before the buzz dissipates, yeah.